Um, if you have a Bible, you can open it up to the book of Revelation, which is what we're currently in as a church as we're going through a study in this book. Um, and we're at the beginning of Revelation still, which is a series of letters that were initially given to John to give to these churches. Jesus appeared to John on the island of Patmos in a vision, and immediately after appearing to him, the first thing he says to him is, um, I, I want you to write down a message that I have for you for all of these, for these seven churches in Asia Minor. And, um, and that's the beginning of Revelation. So it starts... Um, with these letters that are meant to give um, advice to the church, encouragement to the church. Overall, the goal is very clear. Um, Jesus wants the church to remain faithful to him um, in a variety of circumstances. And so he's writing to all these different churches in Asia Minor that are facing very different circumstances that kind of have different uh, good things about them and challenges about them. And this morning, um, we're in Revelation 2, um, where we're looking at the letter to the church in um, Thyatira, or you could say Thyatira. It's like a tomatoes, tomato thing in the Bible. Um, whichever one you prefer, I'm going to go with Thyatira because that's what I've been saying all week. Um, and uh, so we're going to read. Um, we're going to read that, and then we're going to kind of go back and walk our way through it. It's the longest of the letters, um, so we'll see how this goes. Um, Revelation two eighteen is where we're going to start here, and we'll put it up on the screen for you. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along with us there. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, you have not learned, uh, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. Hear he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, Revelation is a bit intense. Uh, there's some language as we read through even these letters where it seems like just kind of a regular encouragement to a church and all of a sudden Jesus is talking about some very intense and serious and heavy things. 
There's been a pattern to these letters. Jesus introduces himself as a certain thing. He, uh, he tells the church in each one, I know something about you. He starts that way. And what we said last week was he's validating them. And validating is saying this thing is real. So he says, I know you're suffering to some churches. It's real. The suffering you're feeling, it's real. I get it. I'm with you in it. I acknowledge it. I see it. Uh, to those that um, are doing good things, he says, I see the good things that you're doing. And to those, um, so he, he like tells people, and to the one that we looked at last week, he even just says to the church, I know where you live. Not like in a scary way. I know where you live. Uh, he says, he says, I know, that would be pretty funny, huh? He says, uh, that should have been the name of the sermon. I know where you live. Um, because he does know where we live. Just to let, just to be sure, like with our theology and get it right. Jesus does know where we live, but he's not scaring us with that. He's saying to the church uh, in Smyrna, he's saying, um, I, I understand that you're living in a really hard place. And, and, and his presumption to them, the language that he even uses is uh, stay there. Uh, stay living there and be a light to that place. So here he opens his letter to the church with this. We read the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. And we'll get to that in a second. Every, every week that we've been in these letters, we kind of get to who Jesus says he is a little bit later in the letter because there's a connection that it makes to his message. But he says, I know your works your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. He's encouraging them. He's saying, I know that overall you guys are a great church. You're a strong church. When he talks about their works, of course, he's talking about um, their ability to care for people uh, in their community and within their church. He, he goes on and says, I know of your love for one another. The defining characteristic of a disciple of Jesus was to love. Uh, you love God, you love other people. Those within your congregation, in your church family, and those in the city, outside the church, people should say of you, for whatever disagreement I have with this, this cult of people, is how a lot of people in the Roman Empire saw them, they are loving. They do love other people pretty, pretty easily. He says, I know your faith, uh, your, your, which is your hope and your confidence and your trust in who you follow, despite the difficulty that you face in life because of it. I know your service. I know that you serve well. You serve one another well. You serve other people outside your church well. And I know your patient endurance well. This has come up again and again and again. To live as a Christian in the Roman Empire means you're required to have patient endurance because you're not living in the, in the Bible Belt in like the, the 40s in America where it might be a little bit easier to be a Christian. You're living in a place uh, that's very hostile to your faith, very hostile to your values and very hostile to your beliefs where you feel every day like um, you're having to choose uh, to do something that's hard. He says, I, I know your patient endurance. So in all these, all the boxes are getting checked here. You're a pretty good church. You're doing well. In fact, what he says at the end, I think, is even kind of the biggest one of all because it's very, very unusual in churches. He says, your latter works exceed the first. So what this means is that this church was known initially for some great things. But he says... You've done even more than the things you did in the beginning. So, so how easy is it for churches to uh, have a heyday, right? 
to have like those days when the glory days of a, of a church, when, when we were doing these big things that we loved or when we were known this way in our community or when we experienced this powerful move of the spirit and we saw people coming to faith in big numbers, whatever that is, or, or families and communities coming together, experiencing love like nothing else they had experienced. The, the churches have seasons of that initially and that becomes the identity of kind of who they are. They're known for that. But then they'll spend the rest of their lifespan as a church always kind of looking back to those days, wishing it could be like that, wishing that it can be that good, wishing that we could do that again, and often not experiencing anything close to it. What he's saying to them is that you've actually been able to move past the good things you did in the beginning, and you're still doing good things. Because you have to move past those things and let go of those things in order to see the new thing that God's going to do, which is very hard for a community of faith. I mean, we see this historically. Uh, we see this in modern day. We see this with the early church. So he says to them, um, you, you, and in a lot of ways, it's kind of like harkens back to this uh, letter to the church in Ephesus, where he's saying, you've done these great things, but you lost your first love. To this church, he's saying, um, you've kind of kept it and moved forward and grown and matured in it. So basically, all the boxes, he's sort of checking and saying to them, I know that you're a church that's doing well, that you're healthy, you're doing good. You're, you're living in, a, in your own unique place, and you're dealing with your own unique sets of challenges, which are actually pretty different from some of the other letters we've looked at up till now, but you're doing pretty well in navigating those things. But he goes on, of course, and says this, but I have this against you. And then he brings to them the thing that they need to deal with in their church. They've got a specific thing going on, and he blames a woman that he calls Jezebel. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. So uh, there isn't actually a woman in their church named Jezebel. Uh, this is referring back to a, a female uh, in the Old Testament who marries Ahab, like kind of known to be the weakest of the kings of God's people of Israel. Uh, he's weak because she marries him. Um, she's sort of from outside. She's from the Canaanites, and she marries him, and then she uh, proceeds to kill all of the prophets of God and then install her own prophets, and her husband's just kind of cool with it. And as she does that, it leads God's people astray. All kinds of bad things happen. Now, um, in the actual accounts of this that we read about in the Old Testament, Jezebel herself doesn't do terribly adulterous and horrible things. Um, and a lot, it's a big misunderstanding. In fact, that name and that term gets kind of associated with people who are, who are bad in that way. But in reality, what she did was she simply, from within, uh, sort of eroded away at the integrity of God's leaders and his people. She uh, brought in other voices and silenced the voices that were right. This is what she's done. Now, what, now why call someone Jezebel to the church um, in Thyatira? 
Well, there was a woman who had come into the church. Now, she was likely the patron of, or the matron of one of the, the house churches there in Thyatira because uh, a city usually had a couple of different house churches, and that made up for the churches. So there was probably, she probably had a place of authority as she was the head of a household or, or a big part of a household that was hosting a church. Um, that would give someone like her a voice. And she, he refers to her as a prophetess, meaning this is somebody who claims to speak on behalf of God. And as she's speaking on behalf of God, she's saying something. She's teaching something. She's furthering some idea that is basically um, polluting what the people in that church think, their beliefs that they have. Now, in order to understand what she was saying, you have to understand a little bit about the city that they're in. Now, Thyatira, we've talked about these other cities in the past that were these big, impressive trade centers. Thyatira is, the best way to describe it is it is a blue-collar town. It is a blue-collar town filled with laborers who were all a part of trade unions, or they called them guilds at the time. In order to work in a trade, which everyone mostly did there in Thyatira, you had to be a part of a worker's guild. And the guild that you were a part of um, shaped a lot about how you saw yourself. You know how it is, right? Like all the masons got together in their guild, and they were masons, right? And all the, you know, carpenters were together in a guild, and they were the carpenters. And we know how they act, and we know how they talk, and we know what they think, and we know what they want, and we know what they argue for, and that kind of a thing. And so a big part of, of literally living life in this place was you had to be a part of one of these. And the Christians had to be. Now, um, there were ways to be a part of a guild without you know, being a bad Christian. Um, and there was really no way to, make, to live life and to be a part of life in Thyatira without being a part of one of these groups. So the church was consist, it consisted of, of a lot of families that were um, sort of parts of these guilds and these trade unions. And in order to be a part of these, though, there were going to be opportunities to, uh, like everything else in the Roman Empire, to stop and to bow down to the Roman emperor as God. Now, you didn't necessarily have to do that to be a part of the trade union or the guild, but it definitely made you look better. So think of it as like the guild had, uh, you know, uh, 50% of their meetings, 50% of their gatherings were opportunities to uh, sacrifice food to idols, um, eat the food that was then sacrificed to idols, and engage in all kinds of debauchery and sexual immorality uh, that was normal in that time for people that were in trade unions. So basically, if you're a Christian and you wanted to be a part of a union or a guild, then you just had to choose to skip half of what everyone else did. And by choosing to do that, you were attempting to remain pure and to follow Jesus but in choosing to do that, you were absolutely choosing to limit your ability to be involved in this group. You weren't going to be as connected. You weren't going to be as close with everybody else. And that was probably going to affect your ability to uh, excel in your job. You could never be involved in leadership in the trade guild. And that, had a huge, that was a huge problem for believers. So what happened then is uh, someone, and he's calling her Jezebel, this person who's doing the same thing Jezebel did to King Ahab in the Old, the Old Testament, in the Northern Kingdom, someone comes into the church at this time, in this point, and begins suggesting to people that they can actually do these things that the trade guilds and unions do. 
What essentially we're seeing happen here, and we began talking about this a little bit last week, is the the flip side of uh, being a part of the Roman Empire. What I mean by that is this. If you're a Christian, you're living in the Roman Empire, you're going to be dealing with two different problems. One is persecution. The empire and its leadership are going to be persecuting you if you don't follow their ways. They're going to be telling you to reject your God and bow down to their God. And if you don't, they will uh, make your life miserable. You will experience poverty and suffering and ridicule and slander. You'll be arrested and eventually you may even be put to death. That's persecution. That is what the church is being commended for standing up under, to resisting and being steadfast in the midst of. But there's a whole other side to being a part of the Roman Empire as a Christian. And that is what we're seeing here, which is this. The good side, the appeal, the draw of the Roman culture. On one hand, you had, if you don't do what we do, we'll kill you. On the other hand, you have... Don't you want to do what we do? Don't you want to live the way we live? Do you really want to miss out on all of the awesome things that Roman society has to offer? Well, if you lived in Thyatira, if you worked in one of these trades, which was most everybody, then you were absolutely missing out on a lot of what Roman society and life had to offer. You see, there's different kinds of pressures that the Christian will deal with in the church when they are living in a a world that is not favorable towards what they believe. Um, And these pressures come from different places. Persecution is pressure that comes from the outside. Compromise, though, which is what we're seeing here in this letter, and we began talking about last week with Smyrna, compromise is pressure that comes from within. Compromise is pressure that comes from within, and it weakens the church far more often than the pressure that comes from without. Any amount of historical study in the church will show that the church struggled more from the compromise within its own walls than it did with the persecution outside. Not to say the persecution wasn't painful and difficult and caused great harm, but the church under persecution usually thrived. It actually grew. Its witness expanded. Its light shone brightly in the darkness. But when compromise comes into the church, which is pressure that comes from within, from its own people saying to one another, maybe there's an easier way. That tends to be what takes down the church most, affects its witness, shrinks its numbers, um, and takes its own theology and beliefs about God and distorts them to a point that they're no different from the outside world. This is the greatest danger, it seems, because it's caused the great amount of harm. So what we see here, why Jesus is so harsh about this woman, this Jezebel, he says, is he saying that she's come in and she's taught some of you that it's acceptable to eat this food. It's acceptable to engage in this sexual immorality. Or in other words, there's got to be a way that you can be a follower of Jesus and do all these things that other people are doing. There's got to be a way. Do you really think that God wants your life to be this hard? 
Do you really think that he wants you to live here and not be able to enjoy all the things that people enjoy? Perhaps there's just this old-fashioned way of doing things that God expects us to grow up and move away from. You see, what's interesting is that a little bit later, he refers to this same teaching uh, this way. He says, um, uh, to the rest of you in, in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. So why does he say that, the deep things of Satan? So he's being sarcastic, which is awesome. Any, anytime you see it in the Bible, grab it because it's hilarious. But he's saying this is a play on often what someone like Paul would say, that there are these deep things of God that we seek to understand. So what he's saying is he's making sort of a joke about the fact that this woman would come in and she would say, this person, this leader would come in and they would say that these new ideas they're introducing are not actually um, bad ideas. They're better ideas. They're deeper ideas. They're secrets almost, the deep things of Satan. You see, a person or an idea or a teaching comes into the church and says, actually, if you were a real expert on this thing, if you pick it apart just the right way, if you understand it in light of all of the things that we just learned in the last year and a half maybe, then you'll see that uh, this thing is different than you thought it was. Claiming to be deeper, truer, more knowledgeable than all that have come before it, this person would say, these are truly the deep things of God. But Jesus refers to them as the deep things of Satan. So, you see, um, this, this idea will not usually present itself as, aren't you kind of tired and just ready to stop caring about what God wants? No, that, that doesn't get very far. What gets far is someone saying, like, this is what God wants. It's even more what God wants. And what's crazy is that it turns out that what God wanted for us all along was not that different from what the world was doing. Isn't that a much more palatable message? Of course. So we see that this is the pressure that comes to the church in Thyatira. This person that he's referring to as a Jezebel, by just kind of comparing her to someone in the Old Testament, sort of like what we saw last week with the talking donkey and Balaam and Balak, the same kind of thing. He's referring back to somebody in the Old Testament that they would have known of. So he's saying to the church two very clear things. One, if you're falling in with this, if you're someone who's being affected by this, or probably if it's your house church that this is occurring in, you need to take this seriously. If not, don't worry about it. Pretend like we never had this conversation. I don't want to add any more burden to a church that's already doing well. So what he's first showing us is where this comes from. It doesn't come from outside the church, it comes from within the church. But I think the question that it leaves us to ask is, how could these ideas gain traction? How could a church that's doing so well uh, begin to compromise their theology when someone comes in with a different kind of a message? And I think the reason why this happens 
And uh, it also speaks to a little bit of a disconnect that we might feel today, is um, basically we would look at this, and first of all, we would say, well, good news. We don't have to deal with any of this stuff because we don't have uh, idols like they did. We don't have worship of pagan gods like they did. We don't have these kind of rituals and celebrations like they did in the Roman Empire. So we're good. Let's just blow through these letters. Let's get to the good stuff, right? But the reality is, even though we live in a secular culture, or as some would say, we once lived in a religious culture, we live in a a spiritualized culture, we now live in a secular culture, the idea that there are not still gods and idols is simply not true. In fact, it turns out that living in a secular world just means living with a completely different set of idols and things to worship. They're just not religious things. We live in a time when confidence in the religious narratives that we've inherited from the people that came before us has collapsed. Confidence in those religious narratives is gone. People don't look to those things anymore for meaning and purpose in life. But the marketplace in replacement religion is absolutely booming. It's doing better than it ever has before. Because that energy had to go somewhere. And if we're not looking to traditional religious narratives to find our meaning and our purpose, to have something to worship and to give our life meaning, then we are still going to look somewhere else. All we have to do is look around us in this world and say, what has everyone channeled all that religious energy into today? Those are the gods. Those are the idols. Those are the things that we're tempted to conform to. People all sleep in a lot more on Sunday mornings, and yet we've never been more pious than we are now because we have even more gods to worship and more things to devote our lives to. You see, there are things that we give our lives to because they give our lives purpose. Uh, Things that we use to make sense of the world around us, to explain what the heck is going on. There are things that we look to that help us deal with things like guilt, how to figure out how to make ourselves into better versions of what we once were, of what we were before. Religion is a, a thing that people rely on for meaning, for hope, Or some would simply say for enoughness, to feel like I'm enough, I'm doing enough. But all of those things that people would look to traditional religions for in the past, we simply look to new things for living today. I was reading a book by a pastor this last uh, few weeks um, called Seculosity. And the whole book is just about how in a secular culture... That religious energy goes somewhere else. And what are the replacement religions, the gods that we worship, the idols that we bow down to in our world today? And he kind of outlined the main ones that he encounters working with people. He said, these idols are busyness. You're like, busyness? Busyness. The need to perform. The feeling that I'm not doing enough, and if I simply did more, then I would be on the right track, and my life would matter. I can't slow down. Fear of missing out. It just feels like maybe there's supposed to be something else that I'm doing that we're doing. And we now almost, almost brag about busyness. Like if you're not saying that you're totally busy and swamped, then like, who the heck are you? We're entering into the busiest time of the year. 
Believe it or not, it hasn't always been that way. Holidays haven't always been uh, associated with simply busyness. Parenting and families are idols and religions today. This is my chance, we say, to do things my way. This is my chance to get it right in my marriage with my kids and my family. And it becomes a whole way of life. Uh, the other idols and things that we worship are technology, our food and our health. We look to these things to actually um, be better on a level that we would have only looked to religion before. Politics and romance, love. We're in love with the idea of love. We're in love with the idea that political leaders are going to fix everything. We're in love with the idea that if we just find the right diet, if we just work out enough or, you know, like punish our bodies enough, then uh, maybe we'll forget about all the stuff we have that we don't deserve or maybe we'll forget about all the ways we feel inadequate. Essentially, what is happening to the church in Thyatira is that people are becoming more and more convinced because of this person who's come in from the outside that they can be a Christian in their belief but not necessarily have to live the way Christians live to up to this point. They can combine the religions of the world, of their Roman Empire, with the theology of, yeah, I profess the faith in Jesus. I worship the God of the Israelites. And I can only imagine how these teachings would have sounded, right? Do we really need to follow the same rules as the people that came before us? Have we not gotten past that stuff yet? Have we not learned better ways? Uh, the same old gods just have new names. And compromise says this God and your God are going to get along just fine. This is what poisons the church, and this is what causes more damage to the church than all the persecution outside, aiming in. It is voices that say, this God and your God are going to get along just fine. There can be a marriage between the two, and this is exactly what this Jezebel was saying. This was a person who came from the inside. In the Old Testament, she married a king. That's pretty inside. Uh, in this house church in Thyatira, she probably had a position of authority because of her, her place in the church, and it was leading to this. So this is all absolutely a temptation today in the same way that it was when these letters are written to the churches. That you can bear up under the persecution, you can profess to follow Jesus, and yet you can choose to live a life that is so similar to those outside the church because you think that those two things can be divorced. And what Jesus is reminding the church is they can't remain faithful. Stick with your God. And don't let these other things come in. So Jesus' response, it seems like a really, really, really harsh one. Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. That escalated quickly. Yikes. 
So what he's doing is he's sticking with this metaphor of sort of almost like a, like a, like a mother in a family. And he's basically calling followers children. He's not actually saying, this person, I'm going to punish her by killing her children. He's saying that um, this, this, this bed that she's like sort of, he's kind of combining all this language of like people invite, being invited into beds and having a home that's unhealthy and that's sort of almost poisonous. And he's saying, I will cause her to become ill. And those who become adultery, who commit adultery with her, they're going to experience tribulation as well. He says, I'll strike her children dead, meaning her followers. I can actually take their lives from them. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. This is very intense language. We come back once again to judgment, to judgment, which we come to again and again already in these letters. Judgment, the idea that uh, Jesus says, I will punish evil and I will do what I must in order to keep my church basically pure and holy. I will do that because I take this so seriously. And what we see in Jesus and we will see throughout Revelation is that judgment and love are not opposite things. That judgment and love exist together. The news that he gives to those who do well, on the other hand, is this. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over all the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." So he's giving two alternatives. He's saying to those who do well, they will receive a reward. And to those that follow this false teaching and do not repent, he says, I've given her a chance to repent. She has not taken it. And so now the punishment and the judgment will come. Why so harsh? Why such punishment? Shouldn't we be more tolerant? Shouldn't God be more tolerant of these things? We have this fruit basket on a table in our house, and in this fruit basket sits fruit. And I swear, one day, everything in there will be perfect for eating. If nothing, not necessarily ripe quite yet. And I know because I have kids, and kids are very picky about fruit. Nothing makes you feel like you're raising spoiled kids more than like handing a banana to a kid. And they get out a magnifying glass, and they're like searching it. There's a brown spot. I don't eat brown spot bananas. You know that. You throw it away. Bring me another, right? I don't eat green bananas. There's some green on that banana. Like, do you have any idea how hard it is to time a banana being eaten in my house? And how quickly they're just thrown, they're just cast aside. Ha, right? Like some kind of rich king or something. One day, everything in this bowl is great. One day later... I'm like, why are there little things buzzing over this bowl? <laughs> oh, 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 that's not good. Oh, there's like, like a rotten apple in here. Oh, 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 my goodness. And then it just gets worse and worse and worse. I was, I was interested in what causes this. 
An apple, for example, when it begins to spoil because it has a porous skin, uh, when an apple begins to spoil, it exudes ethylene, which is a gaseous compound, and it induces ripening to all the fruit that is around it. Or in other words, as any parent of any middle schooler has told them, one bad apple ruins the whole batch, ruins the whole barrel, ruins the whole bag. I've seen this done in like, in like youth groups before. It's brilliant. You take a bag one Sunday, you're one week with a bunch of good apples, and you take one bad apple, you toss it, and you close it up. You say, let's come back next week and just see how those apples are doing. You see, the reason the judgment is so harsh is because Jesus knows the truth that there are certain ideas that are poison and that they spread very rapidly. Why? Well, we talked about this last week. We talked about how this temptation to allow our theology to become distorted usually comes from one of two places. Uh, One is that a Christian is already feeling weary It's hard to live in an area that's hostile to your faith. It's hard to live in the Roman Empire where they don't believe what you believe and that you're having to accept the fact that you will not do as well in life by their standards if you remain faithful to Jesus. Your weariness will cause you to get kind of, well, worn down. And as the result of that, when ideas come in that make it easy to combine the two, you are ready to hear them. You're ready to receive that. It's an environment that's ripe for that kind of thing. What we said last week, the encouragement from Jesus, we read in the words of Paul, is to not grow weary in doing good. You're weary because you're doing good. You're tired because you're doing good. Don't let your tiredness turn into weariness and don't make the mistake of thinking that it's happening because you just have outdated theology. Because what will happen is someone will give you a book. They will send you a podcast. They will uh, tell you about a, a new thing and a new person, and you'll listen to it, and you'll go, oh, my goodness, this makes everything so much easier all of a sudden. Because I think that's kind of how the church works now, is I think our idea of church is not just everyone in this room. Otherwise, we would be in luck. We could just be like, I don't think there's any Jezebels here, so we're good. Everybody have a great one. We'll see you next week. But the church now for Christians is all of the, of the information, all the teaching, all the ideas that we consume from other people that are Christians, especially people who are in positions of leadership and influence. The other thing we said last week that leads to this kind of distorted theology is it's not just like weariness, it's recognizing that people have gotten it wrong in the way they've lived out theology in the past, and so then we believe that we have to go to the other extreme to correct what they did. We believe that two wrongs make a right. We believe that the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater. I'm using like amazing metaphors here. I don't know if you guys know, I'm just like killing it with the metaphors. (laughs) These brand new things that no one's ever heard of before, like an apple that ruins a batch, right? My parents could tell by the way that I was acting at certain times in my life growing up that I was hanging around people who were not a good influence. It was like they knew this isn't you or this isn't the kid we raised, right? You didn't hear that from us. 
No one in this room has ever said that, right? I mean, they didn't hear that from us. So we can tell at times there's this other voice, there's this other idea. And Jesus loves his church because his church is his bride. And he says, because I love you, because you're my bride, then I love you enough to bring judgment to those that do that. He says, there will be time for repentance. There will be time for coming back into the fold and recognizing that a person is wrong and that they've been led astray. But if they don't, he says he will bring judgment and that judgment will be harsh. And that is meant to remind us of the importance of um, when there are situations where we are not to be tolerant. Sometimes love calls for tolerance. Sometimes love calls for judgment. And sometimes the most unloving thing that you can do is tolerate something that is leading to death. Now, what he promises to those who are doing well is he promises something uh, very good. If we go back here, he says, um, to the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over all the nations. So he's not talking about a works-based righteousness. He's not saying, I expect you to earn your salvation. What he's doing is he's acknowledging to the church that your works matter. The way that you live and behave matters. Not just the things that you profess when you're together at church. So he says, if you, are, if you, if you stand this test and if, you, and if you keep my works until the end, if you don't allow these things to be compromised, which is so easy, right? If you've, ever, if you've grown up in the church, you've had, you've had different phases where you've gone like, did I care too much about the rules? Does that mean I should not care at all about the rules? Does that mean that all the rules were bad? Does that mean that... And we have to figure that stuff out. But what he's saying is... Until the end, recognize that the works matter. They do. And to the one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Imagine a town of blue-collar tradespeople being told that they will conquer and they will be given authority over all nations. I would imagine that if you're someone living in Thyatira, that you've accepted the fact that you're not going to have a ton of influence in the Roman Empire. That you're not working for power and authority. That's not something you would ever think you could accomplish. At the very most, what you're working for is uh, to do your job well, to be accepted by your community of people, and to probably be comfortable, to maybe be able to provide for your family. But what Jesus is saying is, Know that if you remain faithful to me, that what you will receive will be far greater than even the things that you've been expecting in this life. You will actually be people who will conquer. You'll be conquerors with me. He says very clearly, I'm going to win. I'm going to have authority. But guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to share it with you. I don't have to, but I'm going to. You will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. And even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus says here at the very end, I will give them the, the morning star. So the morning star, Jesus is talking about, probably he's talking about the planet Venus. 
because uh, there is a bright star that we see. Uh, it's the brightest as we're getting and approaching the dawn hours. And that star, that time, that star that they would see would probably be a planet, probably be Venus. And that morning star um, was one that would be the first bright thing that would come out that would tell you the dawn is approaching. So what Jesus is saying to the church is he's saying that like um, there is this bright star that shines that signals to people that the dawn is approaching. And some people would even mistaken it for the sun coming up and things like that. And what Jesus is saying to his church is he's saying to them, I will give you the place of being my people who are a light to the world, who live in such a way that you are the star that indicates um, that the dawn is coming, that the night is over. The way that you live matters. Your ability to remain pure as a body does matter. What's interesting when you look at the founding of our country and how it began was that there was lots of groups of people who came over to America and uh, in, in the original colonies. Uh, mostly, if you look at the history of it, it almost looks more like just failed business ventures. A group of people would get sent over, they would do horribly, and then they would send over another group of people, and they would do pretty badly because those people, it turned out, didn't really want to, like, you know, be survivalists. Uh, they were, like, looking for things to be a little bit easier, and it turned out you had to kind of work pretty hard. You had to know how to survive in the wilderness. There were a lot of things you had to deal with. There was one group that came over, um, and they're the ones that a lot of people, most people like to associate with all the original sort of pilgrims. You see, you have the early settlers, and then you kind of have the pilgrims. And we like the idea of the pilgrims because they came over, they did a, a, a semi-decent job of actually surviving and making things work. Um, but that group that came over were believers that were seeking a way to live out their faith, and uh, because these people were seeking to uh, live in a way that was in alignment with their theology, they were simply called Puritans. That's what people called them. That's how people saw them was a Puritan. If you tried to just do things that were consistent with what you believed. I mean, there was a big contrast <laughs> between most of the people that came and began the colonies and uh, religious people who came. Um, I was once at a, at, at, a, at a dentist office, and I noticed that the person in the dentist office, the hygienist, had the same last name as someone that went to my church. And I said, hey, do you know this person who goes to my church? And they were like, or I didn't say they go to my church. I just said, hey, do you know this person? Are you related to this person? And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, totally. Um, they said, he's my uncle. And I was like, okay. And then they just immediately said, he's kind of a puritanical guy. And I was like, and then they're like, how do you know him? And I was like, I'm his, I'm his pastor. And then they were just like, oh, oh, I mean, he is so great. Like, he's always been there for me through a lot, and I've been through a lot, and he's always been there. And I'm like, this is incredible, and I couldn't wait to tell him, and I did. I think the truth is 
that in order for us to live in a way that is consistent with what we believe, we have to be prepared to be viewed by people as, as Puritans. I mean, that sounds extreme. But that is how an outside world views people who do not grab onto their gods, grab onto their new ways of worshiping and having religion. Our world will say to us again and again, stop believing what you believe. And we won't. There will be those within who will say, instead of not believing what you believe, your God will get along fine with this one. There's a perfect marriage between the two, and what you'll find is that your Christian life will be easier. To those people, Jesus says to the church here, he says, resist. Recognize the danger of that. Recognize how it will affect your witness and your ability to live out your faith in a way that is right. Do these good works until the end. And if you do, there will be great reward. Let's pray. Father,